You're listening to 92Y Talks. Matthew Ricard, the author of Happiness, talks about his new book, Altruism. In a conversation with fellow Buddhist Richard Gere, Ricard discusses altruism's power to change the world and how it lives within all of us. The event was recorded on June 14, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So, hello, all you Upper East Side rabble-rousers, you. I know why you're here. You came here to change your lives, didn't you? Well, it's a great pleasure for me um, to be here. Actually, this is, I forget how many times I've been here. A couple of times for movies and a couple of other times. Um, Matthew and I have known each other, I think, for at least 20 years. Yes. And 25, maybe. Say what? 25, mother life. Maybe 25. And, and we just saw each other in, by accident at the LAX uh, airport. And I was just coming in from, from uh, Australia, where I was lucky enough to spend some time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And you were just coming in from promoting a book, weren't yes. you, in Brazil? Yes. This is. Um, Matthew's one of the really special people. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you can feel that just seeing him, but he's, he's unique. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> he, if you read his biography, you see all these wonderful teachers, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but uh, Dilgu Kenji Rinpoche and, and other very high lamas, who, the extraordinary lamas of the 20th century and uh, the, the incredible good fortune and, and karma that he had to find himself in that kind of proximity is really an amazing thing, and there's a reason why, which has led him to, to be here with us tonight but do the good works that he does on the planet that very few other people could do. Having his background as a scientist, uh, but also this incredible drive to, to take Buddhism seriously and really enter into this... Um, vast, vast space of compassion and feeling other people to, to an extent that, that moves us to tears and to action. Um, and he's written this wonderful book. This is a, a huge book, which I have to admit I have not finished yet. But this incredible book called Altruism. And I have to tell you, first of all, what made you write this book? Out of all the, and you've written books on quantum physics and Buddhism. You've written incredible photo books, uh, which have beautiful texts associated with them. Uh, a, a, an extraordinary book that you did with your father, who is a French philosopher. Um, now, this one on altruism. Why did you choose altruism? Well, you see, the, the former books were sort of uh, circumstances. You know, for 25 years after leaving Pasteur Institute, I mostly disappeared from the scene. I was studying with my teachers. I did five years of solitary retreats in NPCs. And I was living on a shoestring, so there was also no way I could sort of come to help besides surviving. And then at one point, someone, you know, we just had a telephone in our monastery in Nepal, and someone called and said, would you read a book of dialogue with your father? And my father was a well-known uh, French agnostic, sort of very polemical, and I thought, there's no way. No, he will do a book with a Buddhist monk, even as his son. So I said, okay, ask him, no problem. I thought I would never hear of them, and 15 days later they said, he accepted. <laughs> I thought, I'm in trouble. 
But you know, like uh, I used to play soccer when I was young, and I know you better play at home. I said, let him come then. So we had this wonderful dialogue, but I didn't know. I almost hesitated to accept. I thought, this is just a waste of time, all these things. And then the bottom of my mother says, no, do it. It's nice, you know, to confront ideas. And that was sort of the end of my piece. <laughs> and that's also why I'm here today, because it's sort of snowball. In France, it was a big splash. And then I started to go here and there to talk, and the things sort of. And then also I could start the humanitarian projects. Because when I saw the contract, you know, you know there's this book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. So I thought, I'm not going to buy a Ferrari. So someone asked me in Delhi Airport, are you the monk who sold his Ferrari? I said, no, I didn't send mine yet. <laughs> anyway, so I definitely I was not going to buy a Ferrari. I'm nothing against Ferrari, but that's not my cup of tea. So I thought, well, so I told the publisher, let's go back, let's change the contract, let's do it with the foundation, and then later, we did, we did our own foundation. So that was the... But this is a long process, too. Yes, so then all those books, you know, Why Meditate, Happiness Book, yeah. because people criticize his holiness, the heart of happiness, especially French intellectuals, they hate happiness, you know. They, <laughs> they call that the dirty works of happiness. So I thought there's something wrong with those people. Why they don't like happiness? And why they criticize his holiness's book? So I thought maybe we should, you know, clarify the issue. So I wrote a book, you know, things like that. But this one... For me, you know, I'm almost 70, and it's really the culmination of a whole life mm. of, you know, the heart of the Buddhist path is wisdom and compassion. I had a wonderful mother who told me that good heart is the best you can have in life. I have been you just showing me pictures of his mom, who is 92. 92 and she, now, she's, and she's a painter, and he, she talks to the birds. She's beaming she's in your kindness. A wonderful, wonderful woman. And then watching his holiness over the years, you know, sometimes he speaks... He teaches very deep philosophy, but when he has a public talk, whatever the title is, you know that after five minutes it's going to be about altruism, love, and compassion, no matter what. So I thought, then, you know, going to the World Economic Forum, meeting environmentalists, psychologists, I was very fortunate to meet all those great minds and specialists. And then I became aware of a kind of a disconnect you could hear people of the environment telling you very clearly what might happen in 50 years. Most likely, I mean, this definitely is going, the herd is not going to be the same, that we know. We don't know the degree of the devastation, but we know it's going to happen. Talking to economists, they cannot but get out of the short term. You know, it's the, the end of the month, the ups and downs of the stock market, the end of the year, balance sheet. No, they don't give... Uh, bonds that will mature in 100 years, nobody cares. If you say you should be compassionate, they say, yes, in my life, but what compassion has to do with economy, basically? You know, Francis Edgeworth, one of the founders of modern economy, said there's no place for altruism in the economic system. So then you have, the, you have the short term, you have the long term, and in between, you have the midterm, you know, your life. You know, moment after moment, how much joy or satisfaction, how much frustration, anxiety, and when you look at 10, 15 years. So those three timescales, it's very hard to reconcile the needs and preoccupation. And then it dawned upon me by talking to these great people. I didn't invent anything, but it sort of crystallized that we need a common concept to build together a better world so that economists can do so with environmentalists and can do so with social workers, deciders, politicians, and so forth. And there's only one concept that works. You know, tell me another one, I will be so happy to hear. 
It is having more consideration for others, full stop. If you have more consideration for others, you will go for a more caring economics. Because the traditional model of maximizing personal preference, there's two things it can never do. Looking at remedying to poverty in the midst of plenty, you, know, you have no incentive to do that to, to maximize your personal interest. You have to step out of that with the voice of care. The second one, so that's the major uh, uh, challenges now is inequalities. It's growing in 36 OCDE countries last 30 years. One big challenge of our times. The second one that the non-caring economics cannot solve, common goods, the quality of the air, of the ocean, of the, of, of the environment, you know, social justice. There's no way that uh, it can be deal, dealt with with maximizing personal preference. You, you need a caring economics. Then, the quality of life. You, know, you have to provide the condition for flourishing that young people can have access to education and express their potential. And finally, the new challenge, because it's new, 10,000 years ago, there was five to 10 million people on Earth. But they could not do any damage. So now, of course, not only we are many billions, but the means we have to act on the planet have been multiplied thousandfold because of the industrial, scientific, technological revolution. So for the first time, in Anthropocene, we are the major actors. And this took us by surprise because nobody woke up in the morning thinking I'm wrecking the planet. So, and it, it comes slowly. You know, if CO2 was pink and the sky was getting pinker every day, we'd be worrying a little bit more. Plus, evolution equipped us with react, uh, emotionally that would react to immediate danger. Now, if I said there's a rhinoceros coming full speed, everybody gets up and run. If I said there's a rhinoceros in 30 years, you say, so what? We'll see in 29 years, you know? So that's the problem. So then you so need- So how do we stimulate this part of ourselves that, that minimizes our short-term goals and, and has long-term wisdom? How do we start to stimulate that? I think is to recognize that first the interdependence, you know, belonging to common humanity, and not to see, say, future generation as some kind of abstract entities because yeah. they don't exist. You know, they don't exist, but for sure they will be there. And they will say, you knew, yet you did nothing. So look at the environment. It's very complex. Politically, we know how difficult it is to make decisions. Economically, of course, because we have to do something that will cost, even if it will cost so much more later, but still now it will cost something. Scientifically, of course, there's a vast unanimity about something going to happen, but the exact modalities, there's so many data. But in the end, it is a question of altruism versus selfishness. That's what, I had no intention to write a, a chapter on environment until this down so clearly, if you don't care about future generation, what's the problem? In 100 years, unless there's a five years old that's going to be really long in this room, we won't be there. So, you know, I'm a Marxist, like his holiness, but the Groucho tendency. You know, Groucho Marx said, <laughs> right, he's my favorite Marxist. He said, why should I care for future generations? What did they do for me? <laughs> but the problem is, I heard a few billionaires saying the same thing, and one textually said about the rise of the ocean, I find absurd to change my behavior now for something that will happen in 100 years. So you get the serious version of Groucho Marx, and that I find it quite tragic. So it is a matter of consideration for others. 
even they are not there, no, you cannot not know that they will be there. I think everyone in this room basically agrees with you. Now, how do we actually do that? How do we start to generate a genuine compassion that is not momentary when we feel like it or when it's yes. comfortable, but is really there 100% of the time? How can we move in that direction? So there's two ways. You know, there's a wisdom way, a cognitive way, is to realize, well, altruism, if you see it that way, is not sort of a noble, a bit utopic, dream type, you know, ideal that's not realistic at all. It is the most pragmatic solution because it's precisely the only concept that allows those people to talk together. And then if you think, you know, how, what are the, the reasons that make you have consideration for others? First, you have to value others. You know, if you, the, one of the main factors that leads to oppression, then slowly, possibly to genocide, is to devaluate others, to dehumanize others, to sort of de-individualize them. You know, they become with a number, they all dress the same, they're all like a mass of people that are seen as a threat, as pests, as animals. Let's, let's attack this from the point of view, from, from the words we use, and which we throw around quite a bit, but in, in, in terms of Buddhism, uh, they have very specific meanings. Love, compassion, Empathy. Bodhicitta, empathy. altruism. Yes. Uh, and and great... empathy also we use a lot these days. Yeah, but why don't, we, why don't we just talk about that and just how this, this sense of, from, from the Buddhist point of view, to, to love is to genuinely want happiness for others. Right. So it is an intention. I mean, it doesn't mean that an intention should not be followed by action. But you, know, you could have a very beneficial ac action. You know, you benefit somebody, you know, you, you make a lot of presents to an old lady, but you want to get an inheritance. You know, on the moment, the presents are beneficial, but your action is selfish, your motivation is selfish. So motivation is like, you know, it's like, for instance, you have a crystal, you can put it on a blue cloth or a red cloth. So depending, that's the motivation, the color of the cloth. Depending on that, your motivation, if it's altruistic or if it's trying to maximize your personal interest at the cost of other suffering. Because just to want to be happy, to be healthy, to live long, that's not selfish. I mean, why? <laughs> you are also a sentient being. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day and if possible my whole life. So this is a natural aspiration. But to do it at the cost of other suffering or instrumentalizing other, that's selfishness. So altruism is to genuinely have an intention, a motivation, the ultimate goal of which is to bring happiness and the cause of happiness, because people may not always be, be sometimes they may be confused about the cause of happiness. They may think that, you know, while celebrity, being beautiful, all this, winning the lottery will bring inevitably happiness, and then when they see that it doesn't, they say, mm, what's wrong? Why not, you know? And they're surprised to see that because they neglected the inner condition for flourishing. So then what happens to this say, unconditional benevolence, uh, because if you feel that in yourself, why should, it's easy to transport yourself in others' minds and say, well, they also don't want to suffer. They might be so confused, but still, basically, no one wants to suffer. So when this benevolence meets with suffering, then it just becomes compassion, which is basically the same thing applied to suffering. The wish made of suffering and the cause of suffering. So in other words, I, I wish happiness for all beings. 
And it can be general, it can be specific, but it's that general motivation of, That's I right. really genuinely want happiness for everyone. Then this other thing starts to kick in, that I, I feel the pain, I yes. feel the suffering of others. I want them to be separated from that suffering. Yes. It's a different level of love. It's, it's become more active already. So when you say, I feel, that's what uh, uh, neuroscientists and sp speak about empathy. So empathy, no, nowadays, uh, at least in Europe, I don't know if it's true here, uh, they sort of um, you know, almost use empathy for altruism, mm. or empathic civilization. People are becoming more empathic. But in fact, empathy is very specific. It's something that tells you how, what is the situation of the other. I recognize it. I recognize it. I'm aware that person is suffering or mm -hmm. that person is joyful. If you come with a big smile, there's an empathic resonance, emotional, that I feel a little bit already sort of with lighted spirit. If you suffer, I suffer of your suffering. So that's emotional empathy. The other one is cognitive empathy. I'm sitting in the plane next to someone who is terrified in aeroplanes. I'm not. So I don't feel what she feels, but I can know that she's in terrible condition and that maybe I should comfort her. So that's cognitive. Mm -hmm. So now the problem with, with emotional empathy is imagine you are a caregiver, a social worker, a nurse, a doctor. So your patient, hopefully, they will cure, otherwise they'll die, but it's very rare that someone will be deeply suffering for 20 years. It's very exceptional. But if you, day after day, you know, suffer, and in the brain you can see it's true suffering. Suffer because of the suffering of the other is too much. Asking if you only have that at your disposal. You burn out, emotional exhaustion, hepatic distress. And 60% of all medical personnel in North America have, are, or will suffer a burnout in their career. Yeah. So uh, we were discussing that. We were. I mean, we're, this, we, this came out of discussion of, of, of bringing wisdom and compassion together, and, and this wisdom aspect of kind of seeing, seeing things in a larger frame than that kind of immediate emotional connection to things, but understanding that, that w through the use of wisdom, one, we, can, we, we understand the interconnectedness of things, but we also see the fragility of the whole idea of a self that needs to be protected. The emotional part is obviously really powerful. When you're around yes. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you feel this incredible sense of compassion and connection to everyone in the room. There's no one that can be in a talk of His Holiness and not feel he was talked to directly the entire time. I mean, that's a very special quality that is spontaneous and full. Yes. But bringing these two aspects together of compassion, of feeling it, of feeling empathetic, but also a wisdom to, to understand how how I can be of most service to develop myself, protect myself. We were talking about the idea of protection. Yes. The real protection is, as we were discussing before. Well, in a way, the real uh, protection is sort of selfless love. Because you see, if you think me, me, me all day long, you're so vulnerable because everything becomes either a potential threat or something that could be instrumentalized for your, what you expect from the world. But the universe is not a mail order catalog for your desires and fears, basically. So you will be a constant, it's like if you're offering a big target for all the praise and blame, gain and loss, everything hits you in a way. Or you're like a little bubble of self-centeredness and everything is like a storm in a glass of water. Mm. 
So you become very vulnerable. So you have a tendency to, you know, again, even more protective. If you feel less, uh, you know, oh, that's okay, you know. Like he says, some people think I'm a living God. Nonsense. Some people think I'm a demon. Nonsense. I'm just a human being. So people can say anything. There's no target. Yeah. So then if you have There's no... There's nothing to stick to. Nothing. If you nothing don't more. feel vulnerable for yourself, then you naturally open to others. You see? So this kind of reification of the self creates a strong vulnerability. And that's why, in a way, altruism is the twofold, uh, it's a win-win situation because you accomplish, of course, the good of others, but at the same time, you will flourish because altruistic love is the most gratifying state of mind that you can ever experience. Because it damages that idea of the self, among other things. Well, because, you know, it, it, it First, it feels quite miserable to be selfish all the time, and you make life miserable to everybody. Plus, it's dysfunctional, because this idea that we are all this little bubble of you know, self-identity, sort of separate from the other, that it's easier to make my happiness in my little corner, I'm not mine if they are happy, but it's not my job, is based on the assumption that we are independent entity, while the, all the phenomenal world is deeply inter interdependent. While altruism, which is recognizing our common humanity, the fact that the sentience, even with sentient, other sentient beings like animals. So then we say, oh, if I don't want to suffer, they don't want to suffer. We feel this commonness. And then naturally, this will be attuned to altruism and compassion. And therefore, because it's attuned to reality, it's bound to function instead of being dysfunctional. But just to come back on empathy, uh, there's a kind of uh, interesting experience that I had working with uh, Tanya Singer. She's a neuroscientist at the Max Planck Institute, and she's uh, one of the world specialists of, of empathy. And I remember I was puzzled in the mind and life meetings with His Holiness when I met Paul Ekman, and he said, but when you do compassion, do you have to suffer, always feel the suffering? And I thought, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes not. We know that His Holiness, sometimes when he thinks of suffering, he, he, he sheds he shed he tears, weeps, yes, he, he weeps. It's not that he's sentimental or something, but he really feels the suffering. Other great masters, like Dilokan Rinpoche, he was like a mountain, always like unwavering, but he had immense compassion, but it was a different modality. So I didn't know what to say. So then I went to her lab, and she said, well, go in the MRI, and then it was a real-time fMRI, so she could see you know, before crushing the data for, for, for weeks, she could see real-time what's happening in the brain. And she said, well, do your thing, you know, your compassion meditation. And she was, <laughs> she was used to study empathy, the people resonating with suffering. So after 10 minutes, she says, what are you doing? <laughs> now, this is not what we see usually. I say, well, I, I practice love and compassion. She says, come out, we have to talk. <laughs> so I came out of the, of the MRI, and we talked. And she says, can you just do empathy? You know, leave alone this compassion stuff, you know. <laughs> I said, well, I can try. When I mentioned to his own, he says, how can you not have compassion? He said, well, you can focus again and again and again on the suffering. Yeah. I was thinking, uh, there was an earthquake in Tibet you know, in 2010 where we, with our foundation, we helped 3,000 people and all the suffering of you know, children being caught in, the, in this concrete. So I visualized that for one and a half hour, you know, by you do 30 second rest, two second the state of empathy, and again and again to measure the differences. So one hour, I was completely burned out. Sure, of course. I mean, I was in a 
powerless, sense of distress, like how do I deal with those people filled with blood? It was terrible. And then she said, would you like to do a break or shall we go to compassion meditation? I said, please let me continue. I have to recover my sort of sense of sanity. And then it was so different. It's like opening the gates, you know, of just pure love, embracing. And it's a, I won't say it's a, you see suffering as positive. Not, of course, but you embrace it in a constructive way. And like if every atom of suffering is soaked and filled. Because there's a motivation associated with it. Correct? Yes, and it's a constructive pure, pure mental empathy state. empathy has no motivation. No, plus it, it has a, it has a, a cost. So the more it's the way that suffering of others affects you, mm-hmm. it's not other-oriented. It's not a gift. And so we found that areas of the brain are so different. So we published a paper to show that there is no compassion fatigue, as you often hear. This empathy fatigue. Yeah. Empathy alone is like an electric pump with water. It burns. And then we found that the antidote to empathic distress is this loving kindness. And now she's doing a one-year program with 300 subjects to study this antidote to burnout. And that could have huge you know, repercussion in the medical world. But let's go back here. What does that actually do? Is this, again, I'm, I'm curious about the wisdom aspect here of seeing damaging the sense of self, which seems to lock us all into this mode which is ultimately going to make us suffer when yes. it's about me. It separates me from you immediately. Well, when you know, if you But remain- the motivation, again, I mean, it's like, it, from, from my point of view, it's motivation. Our entire experience sits on the very tip of our motivation. Yes. That is the deciding factor. Yes, yes, true, yes. So the compassion aspect, when you can click into that aspect of it, is immediately we're, we're creating a motivation which is vast. Yes. Correct. So, While well, self-centeredness is always narrow. Yeah. I have a French, uh, Swiss philosopher, a friend of mine, he says, within the bubble of ego, it's very stuffy. You know, you can't breathe because no, if you, if you put a handful of salt in this glass, it's undrinkable. This is a very narrow-minded space of the exacerbated feeling of self-importance, self-centeredness. You know, if you throw the same handful of salt in a big lake, no difference. So if your mind is vast, you, know, mm. you remain in this pure awareness, mm. not so much focused on yourself, but, you know, have present, you know, first of all, this, this flow you know, there's a, in, in psychology, this Shinshek uh, Mila, I speak of the experience of flow. Like artists, mm-hmm. doctors, mountain climbers, they get in that state where it's neither too challenging nor too easy and the state of flow. And it's very gratifying and they forget, spontaneous. And they forget it's themselves. Open. There's no center. Yes, they there's forget no themselves. So I thought that meditation and remaining, resting in that pristine awareness is like flow without action. No, you are in that state where there's no focus on the, on the self. And what was interesting when I discussed with Wolf Singer, who is the, Tanya's father, who is a great neuroscientist, and we are doing a dialogue since a few years together, mm-hmm. that he said, you know, if you look at the brain, the vision of the self not being unitary, autonomous, separate entity, uh, but more like a dynamic experience of consciousness, is much more attuned to what we think now about the brain because there's no post, central post of command in the brain. It's all about relations, inter- 
coherence, interconnections. And actually, many of the troubles, like epilepsy, schizophrenia, is when some areas of the brain sort of become a bit autonomous. So you get those visions which you mm. think is reality, but it's not, because you, the brain doesn't speak to each other. So he said that vision of uh, a self that is a dynamic process rather than an autonomous entity is much closer to reality, in fact. So that's interesting. A lot of the work that you were a part of with the mind and life had to do with neuroplasticity. You want to go into that a little bit and how this might? Well, you see, you know, when uh, if a meditator who spends some time, and of course everyone can verify that in their own life, but especially if you have spent many years trying to practice. And you, you know, when I was a teenager, I was just like nothing, I mean, I'm nothing special now, but I was even less special at all. I mean, was one of those 18 years old in Paris, you know, happiness didn't mean much, compassion, you know, okay, fine, I know that good heart is a good thing, but all these things didn't really uh, sort of uh, inspired so deeply so the, my life. So looking back 50 years, you know, I, I'm totally in the depth of myself convinced that the little bit you know, of sort of qualities, whatever I might have, you know, like even a speck of them, is due to those meeting those great masters, studying with them for many years, receiving their teaching, trying my best, even I'm not that good, trying my best genuinely to develop compassion. So I don't need, in a way, the validation of science. But in this world, if I come down and say, you know, it's so great for everybody to meditate on weekend and say, you know, you're such a sweet guy, you know, go back to your hermitage, you know, okay, we know. We are here in New York with the tough life and everything. How can this be relevant to what we do? But now, you know, if some neuroscientists, like our friend Richard Davidson and others, you know, take employees from a biotech company in Madison, you know, not the quite of hermit that you think of, and, you know, they do, uh, you know, two months or 15 days even of compassion meditation or caring mindfulness meditation, and you see that even after 15 days, you see a structural change in the brain. This is brand new, by the way. Neuroplasticity was not thought to exist or be possible until... 20 what? years ago. How long? 20 years. 20, I thought, I thought even less than that. But 20 years ago, the brain does not change. You can't structurally change the brain. And we're finding out now with the test, and Matthew was very much a part of this. Uh, he was kind of playing down how uh, the experiments, but he was very central to these experiments to see how the brain fundamentally can change through everything that one does, but specifically about compassion. Well, it can change in, the, in, in wrong ways. Yeah. You can train someone to kill others mercilessly, even though there's this profound revulsion to kill. That's one of the discoveries I made while researching this book, is that it's not natural to human beings, despite what some people might say. But you can train to do that as you, well. You have to be taught. Yeah. So you have to be careful in what you train. So, but what I think the great revolution was to see that it's not only in people who did uh, 20,000 hours of violin, or 60,000 hours of meditation. But if in two weeks, though you see an increase of prosocial behavior, and you already start to see a shrinking of the amygdala, which is the area of the brain that has to do with anger and fear, the fight or flight instinctive response. But just two weeks. And of course, the more you go, the more those change will be, the magnitude of the change will be important, the more stable it will be, 
So, but that's like any normal process of training. So meditation, you know, this thing that seems a bit exotic, basically is training, training the mind, training the skills for which we have the potential. But we have to value them first. We have to value these exactly. skills and the outcome to give the energy, so we can get up the energy to do the work to make those changes in ourselves. You have to value, and, and get, therefore, if you value, you get an enthusiasm to do it. Let's move into courage and how courage is required to make these, these changes in ourselves and in society. So, well, courage comes from, you know, again, if you're too self-centered, you, know, you have always some vulnerability that makes you a little bit fearful. What the, the Dalai Lama calls compassionate courage, you know, a doctor on the battlefield, if he starts crying and be devastated the moment he sees a wounded person, what is going to happen? You know, he has to have this courage of compassion, because the kind of inner wisdom that you don't verify all these things so strongly, because your compassion doesn't depend anymore the way people treat you. You know, it's like a very, you know, it's so clear that nothing can sort of make you wave out of this benevolence, no matter what happens. So that's, we could call courage or fearlessness. And that is a quality that comes with this, that resilience, that strength of mind, it also comes with inner freedom. Courage comes with freedom. Because if you are the slave of all your hopes and fears and what's going to happen and, and this and that, then you, you know, you're always worried about what might happen. But if you have this kind of inner freedom that you know that you have the resources to deal with ups and downs of life, and then you don't lose sight of your objective, which is to go and help people or to bring them happiness or to build a clinic somewhere in Tibet or in Bihar or somewhere, you're not going to be distracted by what might happen on the way. I, I recently saw a, um, an interpretation of one of the, it's the fourth of the six perfections, and it's usually just translated as effort, but joyous, heroic effort yes. with joy. Absolutely. With joy, with that incredible positive energy that comes from joy, not because it's a drag to do it, but it's a great joy and it's heroic. It's past what you thought you could do. It's past your own self-imposed limitations. It's heroic, it's joyous, but it is an effort to get from here to there. So if you are in the Himalayas, you know, you do, you want to go somewhere, meet a great teacher, or do a pilgrimage, or just see a beautiful mountain. No, it's not always fun because it goes up and down a lot. <laughs> it might rain, and you don't have, I remember in place in Tibet, we were going around this holy mountain, it rained for 12 hours, no shelter. It's not fun, but there is a joy in the form of effort, because you have a sense of direction. Mm. So what better direction than the one that is motivated by love and compassion? So therefore, it's so joyful. The Bodhisattva, you know, who, his main goal is, can I do anything to remedy to the other's suffering and bring them happiness? There's a constant joy. So heroic in the sense of courageous, but not heroic in sense of, oh, that's an exception. No, I don't like these things to people, oh, if you are very altruistic, very generous, oh, this guy is a saint, you know, it's not like for all of us. That's an easy escape, because in fact, Instead of finding some kind of mysterious explanations for the people's goodness, we need to rediscover the potential of goodness we have within ourselves. And we need also to acknowledge. You know, there was uh, 
Anna Arendt wrote about the banality of evil, about Adolf Eichmann. Mm -hmm. We need to recognize the banality of goodness and not underestimate it. There are much more people who behave decently, nicely to each other, but somehow, actually it's comforting to see that we don't pay too much notice. That means we, we think that this, I think is, we do periodically. this is more There's natural. Like 9-11, for, like for instance. Everyone felt New York was transformed in that period. When Everyone Katrina was, was helping each other. Now, you're seeing that maybe in Nepal. Nepal, the moment the earthquake happened, now, of course, there's a, people run when the, everything is shaking like, like crazy. But right after, solidarity, calm, yeah. most of the work of digging is done by the local population. Of course, other people come to help. But it's always that. Katrina was a good example. You know, in the newspaper, they didn't know what was going on. So there was this rape, there is murder, there's rampage. The, the governor sent the army instead of sending help. Then later they found they all suddenly, they all actually apologized because actually people were incredibly helpful to each other. There was calm, there was no rape, there was no murder. Mm. So this idea that this, this is not what happens. So look about the banality of goodness. You know, suppose here today we are happily together and then when we come out, no, you're not going to say, that's great, you know, nobody punch each other's nose. But that's what you expect. If two people punch each other's nose, you will say, you know, there was this Buddhist monk and, and Richard speaking about altruism and people start fighting each other, you know, how crazy. So because it is, attracts our attention because of the extreme. And that's maybe why the media are so full of so-called bad news, because they are threatening. If you, see, if you think that a 20 years old in Europe and North America has seen 40,000 violent deaths on TV and film. What does that have to do with reality? I mean, I've been many places in the world. I've seen many dead people, but I've never seen from my eyes someone being killed. So 40,000, certainly not, unless you are in genocide in Rwanda or somewhere. So this is a kind of distortion. It's nothing that people have some evil intention, but somehow we underestimate the presence of goodness in the fabric of our life. And that's what we need to enhance. And what's the filter we have that we don't see it, we don't feel it? Maybe, maybe it's a good sign. That means this is, a, this is the default mode and that we actually sort of shocked when it's a sort of extreme behavior. So maybe, maybe that's what we should recognize. And so get, instead of the wicked world syndrome, you know, Freud said, from what, I'm know, from what I know about humanity, most of them are rascals. Now, if you start like that, <laughs> no, it's not a very nice beginning in life. So that, that sort of dark vision uh, that we have a violent component that we need to suppress all the time, this is not just good science. There's not a single scientific study that either confirms the hypothesis of universal selfishness or the fact that we have this irrepressible violent component we have to this is just not true. But do we have scientific studies that say the opposite? Exactly. We do. Talk, talk 20 to us years some of, about those. Well, you know, you have to, you know, because people always come with the explanation. You, know, you have somebody who uh, make a generous donation anonymously, but then he says to his friend, I feel so good of having doing that. He says, oh, you do that for the warm glow. You know, nothing about the others, you just feel good. But then 
you know, when people, someone jump in icy water to save a, someone who is drowning or on the subway to pull someone out, you know, they don't think I'm going to feel so good when everything is over. So, and then when people who, all the rescuers in the time of genocide in Rwanda during Second World War, you know, who helped so many people to escape the persecution, I mean, they didn't care about how did they feel good about it. They was in danger for their family, for they didn't expect anything in return. They did it over time. They had a choice. They did it purposely. But if you do see, like in the lab, you know, psychologist Daniel Batson, for 20 years, he put people in very special situation to eliminate one by one the so-called selfish explanation. Mm. To give you one example, if you see someone in deep suffering and you have this empathic distress and you're stuck with the person, no, you, you can't stand that, so you may help simply because you, you want to relieve your own distress. But if you have an easy escape, you know, far from the eyes, far from the heart, so you will sort of choose the escape. So he put people in such situation where they had an easy escape or not. So when they don't have an easy escape, the people with low empathy, they help. If you offer the escape, they go. People with high empathy, they help no matter what, even you offer them to escape. So it could eliminate, let's say for this 30, 40% of subject, they actually were not helping just to relieve their distress. So this is one of the experiments that he did, but he did 30 different experiments because each time someone will come and say, well, but what about the motivation is this? So he will devise a very ingenious uh, setting in the lab to, to put that to the test and find that there was always a good, not everybody, of course, but a significant number of people who will choose what he called the empathic concern hypothesis. So he said, so far, there's no support for the you know, universal selfishness hypothesis. There's no a shred of evidence in the But scientific. as you said, with kids, it's more evidence. It's, it's so, stronger, it's easier to find. So again, you know, this is this kind of... Uh, almost ideologic ideas. You know, again, Freud, I'm sorry to quote him again, but he said, basically, little children are little selfish brutes. <laughs> no, but he said that, and I'm sorry, I'm not against especially anybody, but you know, read what he says. Then he said, when they are five years old, they learn social norms, and it maybe it's better to further their interests to be a little bit nice to others. Well, it turns out it's just the opposite, literally the opposite. No, there are people like uh, Tomazello and many others who look at two years old and how do they cooperate? For instance, someone drops something in the lab. The kids run, 95% of the kids. If you throw something, they don't move, so they make the difference. No, you need help or not. And all these things show that kids are unconditional cooperators. Now, when they are five years old, and they do that with strangers, with anybody, when they are five years old, they start to see that some people are not quite nice with them, so they start a little bit to discriminate. And that's, anyway, it's in the protection, otherwise they might be abused. Now, you look at babies, you know, one year old, even eight months old, and you show them a little video, there's a, a little ball with big eyes that sort of climbs a slope. Another ball comes from the back, and she can't, you know, the ball cannot go, Another nice ball comes from the bottom and helps, you know, a blue ball. Then another time you have a green ball that comes from top and push it down. Then you come to the, 
you know, eight months old or, or, or two years old, and you give the, the two balls. 98% take the nice one, the kind ball. You with puppets, same thing. They did it with three months old. How you can say that they don't go for the ball, but you look at their gaze. 95% gaze towards the, the nice puppet. Mm. So they instinctively prefer people who behave nicely. Mm. And then another one which was very cute, it was done with, you give sweets to, you have two kids, you give sweets to them. And at some point, you are about to give a sweet to one of the kids, and you say, should I give it or to the other? Yeah. And so sometimes they say give to the other, yeah. and you film them. So sometimes they take it, but when they give it, you see they are full of joy, much more than when they keep it. <laughs> keep it yes. So somehow <laughs> it shows that it is more attuned because yeah. you prefer being joy that mm, I got my sweet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got questions here. I'm going to look over these, but I, I, I think I'd love for Matthew to talk about the situation in Nepal because his sure. monastery, uh, Shechen, uh, was damaged. And it's an extraordinary place. They'd started a clinic there about 20 years ago? 15 years ago. 15 yes. years ago, and I've been there several times. It's an extraordinary place that, that services not just the Tibetan community, mostly the Nepalese community. Of course. And uh, um, there has been damage, but I think we'll give a short report to everyone here well, the situation uh, in the No, when the earthquake happened, our monastery, there was an old 85 years old lama giving teaching. So there was 5,000 people in the courtyard, inside the temple, and outside. And the monks who had been trained for eventuality of earthquake because it was impeding, they immediately start to help people evacuate, keep them out of the tent, and for 15 days we fed basically 5,000 people. But then the clinic, we have also teams in the clinic and the monks also went in the village. First we looked what was around. Our area was not so damaged. The monastery didn't collapse, but it is badly damaged. So the structure has to be redone. It's kind of two years of work, and it's, of course, going to be very costly. But what we did with the clinic teams and the monk joining with the doctors and everything, for the last month, we went to 200 remote villages because most of the damage happened in, in remote mountain villages outside Kathmandu, where 80% of the house collapsed. And because there's no road always, sometimes you have to carry stuff, it was, they was deprived of food for, for, for a long time. So now we managed to reach, like with trucks and porters and all our teams, 200 villages, and we could help 70,000 people, and not just helping you know, by comforting them or giving them a, you know, a little bit of something, but for each of those 70,000, giving them ration of food for 15 days, and the doctors look after their condition, uh, if there are some problems or wounds. And then we brought uh, shelters like tar tarpaulins because it was raining after the earthquake, the monsoon is coming. So that was the first step of what we did. And now, you know, you know of course, after a few months, all the big organizations who came specially for that, they go back. But we are there and we'll continue as long as it takes to help people rebuild their life. It's very hard to rebuild all the villages, but we will focus on community projects, rebuilding schools, dispensaries, wells if necessary. We, we equip people with solar electricity. We'll make sure that uh, orphans are not trafficked. You know, there's a lot of uh, 
traffic with children and women that are sold to India and other places for prostitution or forced labor. So we try to prevent that, work with other NGOs. We work with the electoral commission that tells us where the village are that has not been reached yet by the government or other NGOs so as not to duplicate. So we are fully committed uh, to do that. And of course, uh, any support is welcome. I think you have some. I think there are flyers in the back. I don't know where they are, but flyers are available and there is here. People from our and foundation it's, here. It's uh, Karuna Sachin. Karuna, you know, means I wanted to call it compassion in action in France. And they say, you know, a very secular state, too religious. So I call it Karuna, which means compassion, but they didn't know. <laughs> but I must say, too, if, look, this, this organization does incredible things inside of Tibet. And I've been helping them for years, and I've been very gratified to be able to help. But the building of schools, the building of clinics and hospitals, uh, the repairing of religious institutions, uh, uh, really doing extraordinary work there. And um, I probably shouldn't even admit that I'm helping. That probably is not we good won't for tell you. Anyone, okay. Don't tell anyone. Um, but in, in northern India, in Bihar, around the place of enlightenment of the Buddha, 50 kilometers round, we have mobile clinic that goes in 190 villages, and there there's really no help, no medical presence, nothing. And we do alphabetization, literacy program for the women, all kinds of things. So it's really uplifting to be able to I serve. Re I remember there was, I mean, years and years ago, I, I was able to help for $80,000. They built a school for 600 kids in remote area of, of Tibet. Yes. I mean, what an extraordinary thing. It's just yes. amazing. And, there's, and those there's kids no would never have gone all. to school. There's no overhead, there's nothing. All the money goes directly to the work helping people. So, so please, uh, re look at the literature and, and do what you can for them. It's really a we'll wonderful, wonderful organization. Um, we'll do some questions. I think we have, I don't know how much time we have, 15 or 20 minutes, I think. I don't know. Um, Okay, so actually, I think this was the lady who was sitting next to us at dinner. Really? Uh, I know you've written a book on animal ethics. When will it be available in English? And can you say a few things on the topic? Any thoughts on animals and diet? Right. Well, you know, <laughs> we have made immense progress, what we call civilization. You know, not long ago in Europe, about 200 years ago, you didn't go to see football or soccer matches on Sunday afternoon. You will typically go to the public arena to see someone being hanged or put on, on a wheel and they will break their bones. Public torture was like a distraction. You would take children and wife. There was even a village in the east of France that didn't have a death sentence for a few months, so they bought a dead guy from the other village to, to be able to torture it in public. Now, you can't imagine that now. The last sorceress was burned in 1825 in Switzerland, in Europe. It's not so long ago. The immense progress of civilization. Now, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In 1789, 10 determined people said we must abolish slavery in Britain, in Great Britain. They were thought to be lunatics. Now, the, the House of Commons said, how you can say that? You know, the British Empire will, economy will collapse without slavery. Now, 10 years later, there was a tipping point, and today, who could say, it was not so bad, you know, it was not a good deal. So, immense progress of civilization. No, the value of human life is no more can be instrumentalized, commercialized. There's still, of course, slavery in this world, 
40 million people, it's not nothing. But basically, it's totally illegal all throughout the world. But there's a huge gap of coherence because you know, when you know that animals, of course, are sentient, they can feel pain, they want to be alive, and uh, the more you see the continuum in evolution, you see no magic gap, especially if you look all the hominides, you know, step by step by step by step, you know, coming to Homo sapiens sapiens. There's no quantum leap at some moment where it's completely something different. It's all gradual, progressive. So now this huge gap that human value is non-negotiable. That's fine, the human life's value. Of course, that is, it cannot be negotiable. But animals are like commodities. You know, they, are, they have no intrinsic value except if it's commercial. So we kill 65 billion animals, land animals, every year. Thousand billion, that's a trillion sea animals, just like if they were just at our disposal. They are sentient beings. So there is a incoherence. If you want to have a, co a coherent ethics, we cannot anymore sort of not look at that. You know, it's convenient not to look at that, but you know, it's an inconvenient truth, if we may say. So I think the next step of extending further this empathy and altruism in that natural progress. It's not a quantum leap, it's just the next step. It's to say, well, you know, why not avoiding those unnecessary suffering? And then the last thing I would like to say is if we don't do that, everyone is losing. Why? First, the animals. I, I told you the numbers. Second, the future generations. The industry from, from from production of grain, deforestation, everything that leads to meat production is the second cause of greenhouse gas effect, 14% according to the IPCC report. After the buildings, before transportation, before the cars, the planes, the boats. Because methane, which they emit in great quantities, is 20 times more active for greenhouse gas effect. So this is one of the big challenge, but also that will be one of the easiest to remedy if we simply decide to consume less meat, which is so easy. It takes five seconds, not even. I will eat five times less meat. You know, it doesn't take a big uh, sort of uh, uh, upheaval in your life. Second thing is bad for inequalities in the world. Why? Because seven, 700 millions of tons of grain are shipped from South America and Africa to the Northern Hemisphere for meat production. They could feed 1.5 billion people. That's about the number of people under the poverty line. And then the, the cherry on the cake, it now, uh, you know, vegans, they will say, oh, it's so much better for your health. But people say, well, you know, they are fanatics and all that. But now there have been major epi epidemiological studies conducted with 100,000 subjects in the US, published at Harvard and Yale, showing over 10 years that people who eat meat every day compared to not vegetarian because there was not enough numbers, but to people who eat once a week, there's about an 18% increase of mortality every year. So who is winning? Nobody. So, <laughs> so it's only if you ask people why they continue to eat meat, 78% say because I like the taste. No big deal. <laughs> so our compassion stops at the border of our plate, basically. <laughs> Neuroplasticity, we can change all that.
we could change our brain about this. Oh, yeah, Essentially, no this is our brain. This is just the habit of saying, I eat meat. We can stop. Okay, the next question is, what would be the first steps towards being more altruistic slash compassionate? The one thing we can practice every day. Hmm. And this was asked from a 10-year-old girl, I think it is. Oh, where Siang? is she? Hello. Siang is here? Yeah. Good. So you might be there in 100 years. <laughs> so <laughs> we may make a nice word for you. So, uh, oh, yes. So, you know, when you want to bring uh, enhanced altruism, there's two aspects. Individual change, the contemplative practices, neuroplasticity, epigenetics, so that you can talk, change. Talk to her. She's right Where is she? Okay, sorry, there's all these lights, so we look like a wonderful mass of uh, indistinguishable <laughs> human <laughs> beings. <laughs> you know, I was with the Dalai Lama in Montreal translating for him, and there was very strong light. So there was 10,000 people, but he says, I'm feeling I'm speaking to ghosts. I can't see anybody. <laughs> anyway, I imagine you very well. <laughs> so, but then, okay, how we start? So, of course, you know, maybe you play the piano, maybe you do a sport, you learn how to read and write, didn't you? So it didn't happen like that. You are not born. Oh, thank you. Oh, wonderful. There we go. In the balcony, oh, it's even more difficult. On the balcony. Now there we get she straight is up in there. our eyes. Okay, okay, wonderful. So, I'm looking up now. <laughs> so, what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> so, we know you are not born learning how to read and write. You spend some time. So, by what kind of mystery, if everything, all the capacity that you have and that you will have, come from some kind of cultivation? Doing this again and again, why, in terms of human qualities, by which kind of mystery they will be at the top right from the beginning? So in the same way that you learn to play the piano, you have to learn to play compassion in your heart. So what do you do? I'm sure that you had some moments for, say, a few more minutes with unconditional love, for your mother, your father, for your siblings, for a little dog. No, just one thing, maybe safe, maybe happy, maybe spare suffering, no, nothing else in your mind. But sometimes, you know, it goes away. You do something else, somebody comes in the room, you have something to do. So you don't maintain that just as you would exercise on the piano or do gymnastics for 20 minutes. So it is just the same. Instead of letting that go, you will let flourish that in your mind, you will cultivate it, you will nourish it for five minutes, 10 minutes, and that will make a big difference. And then there's another secret, the 10 seconds meditation. And I heard that from my friend Meng at Google. And when he said that in front of the Dalai Lama, I thought this guy is really too much, you know, 10 seconds. <laughs> That's really Google's culture. <laughs> but then I thought it's quite deep. And in fact, in the teaching, we say it's better to meditate many times. It's so much better when you see people, no? Yeah, it's better. So many times repeated than one time at a time in a big way. Why that 10 seconds is, not, is quite smart? You see, every hour or whenever you have a moment, for 10 seconds, you don't jump and, and you know, hug people. They might, some people might mind in the street like that. 
But you look at people for 10 seconds and think, may they be happy, may they be safe, may they be spared suffering. Whatever you see in the street, in your classroom, at home, through the window, just 10 seconds. And then you are in a certain state of mind. You might say, well, 10 seconds is not very much. But think of this. I think your mom, or maybe you, you have a, a bottle of perfume, right? So you open the bottle of perfume for 10 seconds and close it. But the perfume will stay for quite a while. And if you open the bottle of perfume often enough, perfume will stay all the time. So you will be, you, you start a kind of pervading your feelings, your activities, the way you relate to others with this mental state. And that's going to bring change. So the 10 second meditation, nobody can say, I don't have 10 seconds. <laughs> I remember His Holiness was asked on a radio program once, so, so what, what is Buddhism? Yes. And he, and he thought for a second, and it was radio, and, and he was, and I said, oh, it's very simple. You get up in the morning, you set your motivation, and you live your day. Uh, not so simple, but it's, it, I think one of the telling things there is when you do wake up in the morning is immediately set this motivation towards love and compassion and being yes. in the world, being present. And that, that does, it leaves a, a taste that will be with you the entire day. So immediately in the morning, the first thoughts that, that you generate uh, are moving towards love and compassion and, and a meaningful life. Uh, in my own life, I found that very, very powerful. But also, you know, when you get up, if you go three steps in that direction or that direction, that determines the whole journey. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I know just about what his honest was saying. Yeah. Once I was meeting in Belgium, I was uh, in the hot one year retreat and I stopped to go and translate for him. Yeah. And I said, I'm going back in retreat, do you have an advice? And he says, in the beginning, meditate on compassion. In the middle, meditate on compassion. In the, in the end, end, meditate on compassion. <laughs> yes. Very clear. <laughs> okay, this is another question here. What role do you think Western powers should play in countries struggling with human rights? Uh, similarly, how much progress can be achieved in countries where humanitarian crises without external involvement? Because it's begging the question of what well, what is our responsibility and how can we use it well? Well, you know, you have to always see the big picture. The thing that's difficult to answer that I heard recently when I was in Berkeley is, what do you do with ISIS? Well, it's a bit unfair because, you know, of course, when the forest is in fire, you, know, you forget about the early symptoms, the sparks, why nobody's born wanting to decapitate people. You know, something happened in the, in the way they were raised, in the, in the surrounding culture, the way they were educated. There's so many factors that we could have been concerned. Every genocide, they had at least a year or two of precursor signs which were ignored. So then when everything is sort of all over, there's terrible things happening, then we say, what can you do? Ah, what about meditation altruism is good about? It's not very fair because it's in the world of health, we speak so much about the importance of prevention. Yeah. So now, one of the big issues is inequalities. Now, why people will migrate toward the Mediterranean? 20,000 people try to 
across the Mediterranean, 1,400 died this year. When the, with the climate change, might be 200 million climate refugees, according to Nicholas Stern report. What are we going to do with, the, you know, with this thing mm. if we don't so do something to palliate that? So it's when, the, when things are before the forest is in fire. So regarding general issues, if you look at the decline of violence, as you know, Steven Pinker's book has very well you know, documented about that, because people think always violence is on the rise, you know, we can't go out anymore in the street. But if you look at the trend in Europe, in 1315 Oxford, there was 100 homicides per year per 100,000 habitants. Now it's one. In Europe, it has declined 100 to 50 times. There's never been, even though there's something happening somewhere all the time, but never been so safe. And it's true of almost every aspect of violence. In the United States, the violence toward children has decreased by half in 20 years. So these things are happening. But there are causes for that. Promotion of democracy, raising the status of women, women free exchange. Yeah. No, yeah. in Europe, in the Middle Age, there was 5,000 little counties, principality. The main job was to fight each other and ruin each other. Now there's only 50 nations, all democratic. There's very little chance that Belgium will go at war against Italy. Because they are democratic, there's free exchange. If you exchange with someone, you better be alive and prosperous than dead and ruined. <laughs> so isolation, lack of education, poor status of women, and dysfunctional or no democracy, this is, like a, 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 no, this is the worst situation for potential conflict. So knowing that, this is the factor that we should help over time. Here's a question about economic development. Currently, the US government is focused on economic development to the point of environmental ruin as climate change is destroying the life support systems of the planet. How can one change this prevailing thought to benefit all living things? So Thank there's you. a concept that I love. is sustainable harmony. Again, it's not like a sort of dreamlike concept. Now, we have a concept of sustainable development, which is quite good. But when people think of sustainable development and growth, sustainable growth, inevitably they still think of quantitative growth. Now we cannot have illimited growth with limited resources. At the speed we use the resources now, we will need three planets by 2050. We don't have them full stop. So there can be a qualitative growth, of course, improving life satisfaction to various ways to voluntary simplicity or not just putting our happiness is depending upon using things in a you know, luxurious or superfluous ways. So sustainable harmony has two aspects, which addresses two of the main challenges of our time. First of all, to have an harmony in society, you need less inequalities in the, within the country and throughout the world. It has been shown again and again the more inequalities, the more social problems, less uh, longevity, less good education, and so forth, less trust in society. So an harmonious society is a more equal society. Then sustainable harmony in time is to remain within the planetary boundaries within which we can still prosper. You know, we have been an exceptional period of climate stability for 12,000 years, the Holocene, we could continue for another 50,000 years unless we cross those boundaries. And we are crossing them now in a big way for climate change, loss of biodiversity, 
At the current speed, we will lose 30% of all species by 2050. That's the sixth major... 2050? 50. And that's not going to stop. That will be the sixth major extinction since life appeared on Earth. The fifth one be that of the dinosaur and many others. So this is a really acute issue. So for that, it's not the population problem. Even the population stabilized at 9 billion. It will come from countries in Africa and Asia which are not the one that contributes to global warming. Because if you look at CO2 emission, Europe and United States emit 200 times more than Tanzania. Qatar emits 2,000 times more CO2 than Afghanistan. Hmm. So two, even population increased 10%, it's nothing to do with this 200-fold difference. So what we need is to moderate that test for illimited consumption. And again, the cherry on the cake is studied like someone like Tim Kasser, a psychologist from Rochester. He studied for 20 years the people who have the highest consumer mind co compared to those who have less consumer mind. You know, the people who they feel not good, they go for a shopping binge, things like that. The extrinsic image, the, how the car, the kind of fashionable clothes, that's what really matters for them. And they look at other factors. He found they are less happy. They look for hedonic happiness and not quite satisfied. They are less healthy because their life habits are not so healthy. They are not concerned by global issue. They have less empathy. They are more obsessed by debt. So he says, you know, I'm not a moralist, but if you want to be happy, to have a lot of friends, to be concerned by global issue, you should know that voluntary simplicity works better. So voluntary simplicity is not by, you know, I don't eat ice creams anymore, you know, becoming skinny in a cave. <laughs> It's just living a life of moderation. I mean, it's perfectly fine. This is a question I really like. How can we practice altruism when we don't feel like it? <laughs> when it's a drag. It is really a drag. You know, one of my teachers, who was fluent in English, said, no, if you are bored when you meditate, it's not the fault of the meditation. <laughs> So, what to say? I mean, where are the advantages? You know, suppose you do a seminar. Well, the answer is you just do it anyway, because there are times when yeah, so well, I don't well, feel like meditating. Well, Aristotle said virtue, anyway. virtue comes by practicing oh, virtue. Oh. So even you are bored, you don't like it, just do it and it will work. But, again, <laughs> but I think you have to recognize the advantages of it. That's how you get enthusiastic and not get bored. So suppose we do a seminar for a weekend, you know, and you did, we guarantee that at the end of the seminar, you will be 100% more narcissistic, jealous, and angry. <laughs> Who is going to come? <laughs> but you say, well, we'll teach you loving kindness, openness, inner peace. Well, wow, that sounds neat. So we know that. So let's, you know, knowing that, let's build upon that. Well, this is, this is an example, if, uh, an extension of that. For example, when we get angry, how do we practice altruism, lots of love and compassion and everything else, when we're angry? Well, that's exactly the antidote to, to you know, animosity. You want how, to harm how someone? How do you get, if you're in the middle of anger, okay. how, how can you get the space to well, pull back? Okay. It is true that for a few seconds, this is what uh, Paul Ekman and others call a refractory period. You don't even register any good qualities of the other person. <laughs> totally waterproof. Uh -huh. This guy is so bad, you know, no matter what, you know, 100%. But fortunately, 
the mind has some other possibilities. You know, you have the capacity. You no, know, look, there's a big fire. If you're so you're in the fire, you will see only that. But you can take some distance and watch the fire and stop adding wood on the fire. I think this is a practical question. How do you pull yourself back from the fire? Okay. So now, no matter what, you have the faculty, your mind can always sort of be aware of its content. That's, that's natural. We don't have to get it from somewhere. So now, when you are aware of anger, that part, even if it is small in the beginning, it is not angry, it is aware. So in the beginning, it's very tenuous. It's just hard time to you know, be other than just angry all over the place, but okay, I look at anger just as I look at the fire. So a beginning. The good thing about that is that that awareness of anger has a natural propensity to grow. If you just be a little bit patient. It's like you, when you stop adding wood on the fire, it won't die right away. But if you don't add, it will. So naturally, the space of being aware of anger will grow. The anger, which is so like a thunderstorm cloud, so solid, start to be there, but not as forceful, not as you know, constraining to you. It loses presence and its strength. At some, at some point, it's still there, but almost like innocuous. It sort of vanishes away. So that's the space of awareness will grow and grow. And I think that's something we can experience that. Mm -hmm. So the, we need that little space and let it grow. But for that, you should stop going to the trigger. Because the trigger, if that guy did that to me again and again, even he's not there. So that is like, again, you know, rekindling your anger, putting more oil on the fire. So leave that guy for a while and just look at anger, like you look at raw phenomena, like a fire, anger itself, not the guy who triggered that. And then it's bound to vanish. If you want an image in the Buddhist teaching, with the, it vanishes under the gaze of awareness like the frost under the morning sun. It's a nice image to remember. It works. <laughs> I think another, in my own experience, the more that, that we can become familiar with, with the, the large space inside of us, the generous side, the loving side, that the mind will want to go there. So when you, you meditation is really watching the mind, it's being aware of the mind. That's, that's really the process. And it goes in, in much more subtle directions later, but it's being aware of the mind and catching these states as they start to arise. That's part of it, but also having spent the time and the energy to habituate the mind to these other spaces, which are vast and generous and open. Uh, so it's, it's both at the same time. You know, when we are familiar with something, say for instance now, if I just think of my Hermitage facing in the Himalayas, immediately, not only the view, but the state of mind when I'm sitting yeah, the there, comes the with these, all these qualities. So you can refer to something with which you have been familiar and it's much easier. There's another question. We were talking about this before, actually. Is it possible, in your opinion, to teach altruism to sociopaths? <sighs> Tough one. Tough. But it's interesting. Go ahead, it's share, interesting. share with the audience. So first of all, I was fascinated by this uh, question of sociopath, psychopath. 
because they are notoriously impervious to any kind of rehabilitation. They represent 1% to 2%, 3% of the population, depending on the degree of severity uh, of psychopathy. And uh, you know, most of the interventions have failed. And uh, one of the specialists, which is in Madison, in a detention center, said, he told me, for a psychopath, a human being not different from a Kleenex. It's, everything is instrumentalized. If you're nice to him, this guy is just a softy. You know, I'm, how do I'm going to use it? It's contrary to many other traits, which we sometimes overestimate the genetic component. Sometimes they say 50-50. It's actually much less for many others of our traits, maybe 20%. And it still can be changed by epigenetics. But psychopathy seems quite strongly genetically determined because they start very early to torture animals, for instance, and things like that. So what um, uh, a guy called Campbell did in Madison, in Mendoza Detention Center, he has something called decompression. He tried gradually, you know, in the detention center, first, of course, to make it more secure, not by putting big bars or weapons, but a system of surveillance that allows to feel more secure so that they could relate better to others instead of distancing themselves. Sort of rehumanize the relationship between the warders and the, the, the detainees so that there is not a constant cycle of revenge, punishment, etc. And other way is, uh, so that's one way that seems to be the only intervention that gave some, some outcome. And to tell you how dramatic that outcome was, he did that with 150 young sort of psychopathic delinquents. And he, they were released because they, you know, they, were, they had a certain time to be there and they are not you know, they committed any offense that to keep them for life. But within a, a, a similar group in under detention center with a classical intervention, 150 people committed 25 murder within five years. His group, nothing. So this seems to be working. Another thing that I was mentioning is uh, when we did this real-time fMRI, remember I mentioned about the empathy where Tanya Singer was asking me what I was doing because she was seeing. She did a, a, a preliminary study with psychopaths, bringing them in the lab, not the too dangerous ones, uh, and then you know, asking them, could you really try your best, please, for the sake of the experiment, to imagine someone else suffering, which is one of the things they are very uh, incapable of doing normally. So, you know, some of them play the game, and they try and try. And after a while, she could see in the area which is called the interior insula, something being activated. And she told them, that's it. You know, that feeling you have now, try to let it grow. And within a few days of repeating that every day, they started to be able to feel something. So it is the ultimate challenge, you could say, to mind training and neuroplasticity, because first of all, it won't be easy to put everyone in MRI machine with feedback and so forth. But you know, it's not, uh, it's not the end of it, but it is uh, difficult cases. And mm. this is also those who do most of the killing uh, in the wars, in crime situations, because they are quite happy to kill other people which is not the case of normal population. This is a, a much happier thought, and, and um, I think maybe these are the areas. There's questions here about um, maybe you could share some of your practice 
uh-huh. of on compassion. Just some simple things to teach. But one, one of the questions here is a woman, I think it's a woman, I'm not reading this. My twin boys are two and a half. Any thoughts on teaching compassion for children? Yes. So before, you know, so psychopath is interesting study about yeah. successful psychopaths. It was done in the financial city in London. There's a, there's a psychologist who took 30 CEOs in the financial city and compared them to 30 inmates, psychopath inmates of a psychological, psychological hospital. And she used the Robert Hayes scale, which has 25 traits for psychopaths. And she found to her great dismay that they fulfilled 20 of the 25 criteria. And the, two, the few that they didn't, uh, it was different, is that they didn't, rec- they didn't uh, recourse to physical violence. And they have some remorse, which other psychopaths don't have. But it was quite striking. It, it was even you know, reported in Time magazine. It was a quite a good study. Psychopaths, not sociopaths. Well, it's the different. same. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. Well, the, well, we, we, I talk of psychopaths, yes. OK. OK, anyway, what is the chi- children? Yes. Well, yeah, I remember no, the question more. about children. I'm, I, I'm struck. I remember that His Holiness was asked by friends of mine when the, uh, and she had become pregnant, and they were wondering how they could bring these finer qualities into the life of their newborn. Yes. And I remember His Holiness thought for a second, and he said, teach them to value the life of an insect. Well, that's... It's something that is usually thought of as ugly and, and dangerous and... and um, we know. But to step on it. I mean, most kids are kind of taught by culture to step on an insect and be afraid of it. But to learn to yes. that, that there's a life force in an insect as well, I think it's a very powerful thing. You know, the speciesism is that you love certain animals. You know, if you serve your dog at dinner and then tell at the end, we'll go. <laughs> no, but we, lo- we love dog, eats cow, and, and, and wear pigs, or we eat pigs and wear cows, basically. So why? Because some are cute, like dolphins and little cats. And some look terribly ugly. But what's the difference, you know, basically? So it's true that uh, to teach compassion is by example. Mm. And a, a kind of culture that respects nonviolence toward human beings, nonviolence toward animals, nonviolence toward environment. And it is quite common, you know, in, in the Himalayas or Tibet, if there is some you know, bugs that cause along the path when they work, and the parents will, with the children, take a leave and put the insect you know, on site. So that's, you know, the children like that. They, they sort of think it's, it's neat to do that. And they resonate with that. And they are happy to do that. And I remember once we were, you know, I, I took 20 monks uh, in Europe for a tour of sacred dances. We went to the Biennale of Venice. So we spent one month in buses running here and there. We had a nice driver that took us all over the place. And they became friends with the driver. He was a nice guy. Then one day, a a wasp came in, or a bee, I don't know which one was it, came in the bus and on on his window, and he was driving, and so he was beat up. So he took a newspaper and went, bing. You could have seen all the monks went, (gasps) (laughs) For them, it's unthinkable. They would have found a way, you know, ask someone to. So it's part of the life example. but this is easy, you know, you, 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 you grow with that and then this becomes your value. So teaching by example. At the same time, in our Western culture, you know, like what Rich Davidson is doing with preschoolers in Madison, he has this 10 weeks program, 40 minutes, uh, three times a week, and they have uh, this breathing mindfulness or they lie down with a stone or a teddy bear 
And then most of the training is about kindness, gratitude, working together. No, four or five years old, no big deal. Yet, at the end of the 10 weeks, you see a sharp increase in prosocial behavior. Less conflicts, easier conflict resolution, mm. more cooperative behavior. And then they do an ultimate scientific test, a stickers test. What they do is they find for each kid who's their best friend in the class, the, the, the girl or the guy, the, the little boy that they cannot stand, and then they give them four envelopes with a photo of their best friend, their least favorite child, an unknown child, and a sick child. And they say, you have to give away the stickers. When, before the intervention, as you can guess, in-group, out-group, best friend, worst friends, they give everything, most of it, to their best friend. So just 10 weeks, very easy. They think like playing, but they love that. There's amazing leveling down. They give almost equal number to their best friend and least favorite child. So when you know how the discriminations are deleterious in society, whether it's social status, religion, ethnic, name it, the football fans, <laughs> you know, if you can level down in, in younger kids and it's still there six months later, how wonderful. So when the Islamic Dalai Lama went there, he said, hmm, great. Then you go to 100 school, 1,000 school, the UN, the whole world. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Are you guys okay? Should I do a couple more questions? Yes. Does everyone want to? You're still into this? Okay. If anyone wants to go to rest, please, don't hesitate. Well, this one, this one goes back to uh, the reptilian brain and... Um, evolution in Darwin. You spoke of the gratification of altruism on the emotional level, on a scientific level, inspired by Darwin. Reciprocal altruism has been proven to aid in survival. That makes me wonder, is there such a thing as absolute altruism? Well, that's a big question, of course. Uh, well, there is reciprocal altruism, which is a wonderful factor in society. If you look at most, uh, you know, uh, the society that lives you know, in a, with a community of two, 300 people in the mountains, in the jungle, there's still plenty of them you know, in Nepal and all that. There's so many of them. Reciprocal altruism means you build your house, everybody comes, and they help. And there's a big feast, everybody rejoices, they drink together, it's a nice way to be together. Next year, someone else builds a house, you all go. And similarly, for the crops, they don't mature at the same time in different fields because yeah. of... So everyone goes together to harvest when the time has come, and then you will go. So, of course, it's not written as a contract, but if someone will never go, you know, the free rider, you know, ah, they'll come to my field, I'm not going to theirs. No, that will not work. That person will be ostracized, get a bad reputation, and if you are in a tribe of 200 people to be ostracized, in the ancient days means that, because you know, nobody wants to work with you and so forth. So that's why they were very equalitarian uh, and cooperative societies. But that's, you could say, interested altruism, but it's also recognizing that we are interdependent is also, it's not really selfish, it's, the, it's extolling the virtue of cooperation. Of course, you know that people will come to your help, but are you always calculating that? Oh, there's a great joy to cooperate. Now, this being said, Darwin was much more speaking about cooperation and even extended altruism. There's a wonderful passage in Darwin which I have somewhere saying that we could conceive of it through education, it says, 
to extend altruism not only to those who are not our kings, but even, he said, to other species. You know, mm. that was really visionary. But unfortunately, after him, there was a more restrictive view, you know, social Darwinism, so-called, survival of the fitness and all this stuff, and the selfish gene, of course. Well, and, and then the inclusive fitness where the idea, yes, you can sacrifice yourself for eight of your nephews because they carry one eight of your genes, so all this calculation. First of all, you know, as the recent papers of your Wilson and Martin Novak from Harvard in Nature have shown, this is actually a very specific case for a few, you know, uh, social animals like some ants, and, but it's really not generalized, and general Darwin theory is enough to explain extended altruism. And you know, and the guy who volunteers to go and clean Fukushima, if it was a selfish gene, he better run away a thousand miles away. So people like Dawkins said, when you see you know, a, a chimpanzee who wait, or who adopt a young orphan chimpanzee that is not related genetically, that is you know, hampering his movement and so forth, he said it's misfiring of selfish gene. But the fact is the selfish gene misfire so much that you know, we better call them something else. In fact, altruism that goes beyond our kids in humans is so obvious. I mean, you will never have NGOs, humanitarian actions, if it was just about selfishness. It doesn't make sense. So it seems that, uh, you know, if you see why it is actually a community of people who like to cooperate together to have harmonious relations, could be more prosperous uh, as a group. I mean, of course, this is a hot discussion in the world of evolution, but because basically altruistic people like to team together. Not they are sort of good guys who likes to cooperate, they like to share information, uh, they like to teamwork, they're happy when someone else is happy or successful, they're not like terribly envious and you know, so forth. So if you take them, this kind of community that can be in a one place or even virtually, you know, crowdfunding and all these things, you know, Wikipedia, so they're happy to do that. So now if you take comparison, a collection of selfish people who always kick each other's leg, never cooperate, always try to pull the, the, the cover to themselves, you know, those groups, they are bound to prosper less over the long term. And so models have shown that it seems that it could be the case. I think one very encouraging uh, uh, possibility is basically the traits that are selected are those who favor you know, our survival. When we were five million people on Earth, you could imagine that competition would be good, although actually they were very cooperative and equalitarian societies before, before agriculture, before hoarding, before having livestock and hoarding wealth. But now, at this stage, where we're all on the same boat, you know, Martin Luther King said we came on different vessels, now we're all on the same boat, it would seem that in the big cities, in the overpopulated world, that the trait of cooperation should be much more favorable to our survival than, than you no know, merciless competition. So it's quite possible that we will emerge, and you can see sort of signs of that. You know, one of the most vibrant sectors of economy is what we call positive economy, like crowdfunding, you know, microcredit, cooperative banking, uh, impact investment, socially and environmentally responsible. That's only 7% of the economy, but that's the fastest growing. And so that's, and that's the one that 
fares better in times of crisis because people feel that there is a sense of purpose in investing mm -hmm. in a socially responsible sort of investment. So I think there's, there are signs that we might be going in that direction. So again, to quote Martin Luther King, he said, it's up to us to choose if we want to walk in the darkness of destructive selfishness or in the light of creative altruism. So that's our choice. I think that is, that is a great way to end right there. That we're all in this space of making a choice. And um, the more of us who make that choice and work with each other, I think we can really change this planet. Matthew, it was a pleasure spending time with you. Thank you, Richard. Always. Thank you. with all of you. Thank you. One last thing. You know, in South America, they love revolution. So I said, Viva la revolution del altruismo. And everyone went, Viva la revolution. <laughs> Viva la revolution. <laughs>Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.